1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome to another episode in New Books in History. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking with Dr. Corin Fowler, who will be speaking to us about her book, published in 2021 by People Tree Press, titled Green Unpleasant Land, Creative Responses to Rural England's Colonial Connections, which explores the repressed history rural England's links to transatlantic enslavement and the East India Company. The book is a fascinating exploration combining essays, poems, stories, and detailing the history and colonial links of country houses, moorlands, woodlands, village pubs, and graveyards. Dr. Fowler argues, and I'm sure she'll be telling us about it in the interview, that Britain's cultural and economic legacy is not just about stately homes and physical objects, Um, But it's also about the way in which we think about the countryside, both then and now, and who is considered allowed to be part of it. So it's a really interesting book that combines a lot of different types of writing and types of knowledge and research. Um, And I'm excited to welcome Dr. Fowler to the podcast today. Hello. Lovely. Um, So I was wondering if you could start off by introducing yourself a bit and explain how you came to write this book.
1: Well, I'm a professor of colonial and post-colonial studies and i had more of a specialism in literature in my early years of research and so it was really the literature that read, led me to write this book because i noticed that since the 1980s um, a lot of british black and british asian writers had started exploring their relationship with the countryside in really quite a sustained and deep way. And as the years have passed, they continued to produce more and more historicized reflections on the countryside and their relationship with it. They were really led by the history, just as I was led by the literature to the history. And so I started thinking about the countryside slightly differently. I began with thinking I would mistakenly thinking I would just produce one chapter of my book on the countryside and, and look at the rest as kind of contemporary literature focus on urban Britain. But when I started that chapter, I realised it, it was a whole book's worth. And now I became obsessed with it. And just it grew from there, really. And it took me 13 years to write this book.
0: Well, one of the ways in which the clear depth of your interest in the topic really comes through is how you've structured the book with two quite distinct parts. So I was wondering if you could explain for us what that structure is and why you've chosen to do it that way. Yes,
1: so there are two parts, as you've rightly said. The first is a series of longer, but I hope accessibly written essays about different sites of rurality. So that would be, as you've mentioned, the, the history of Moorlands and how that connects to the British Empire, the history of country houses and their colonial links, the history of all kinds of places but ways of thinking about the countryside and even the rural idyll and how that connects to East India Company and slavery history through country house literature and beyond. So I wanted to structure the book in two parts because I didn't want to come at this in an unemotional way because I know it's extremely sensitive history especially when you're unpacking the history of the countryside where people tend to feel a very strong bond with it in the sense that it somehow contains or embodies the past and a kind of nostalgic version of the past often And so I also realised that in the history I was exploring, there were beneficiaries of that history, but there were also people in Britain who tried to make money out of empire and failed. (laughs) That was also part of the story. But there's trauma on the other side in terms of slavery, in terms of indentured labour, and also the oppressions of these colonial figures back in England when they returned with their wealth and started enclosing land and building walls and closing off footpaths and building factories and working people in in the ways that we know they were worked during the Industrial Revolution. So I wanted to think about what that history means by creating a second part of the book which honours the human dimensions Mm -hmm. of that history as a kind of ethical choice And so the second half of the book has my own short stories and poems which respond to the colonial
0: records of those places. So I think we're going to get to some of that later on, um, and I'm excited to hear more about it. Um, But to start off with the first half of the book, Moving in Chronological Order, you discuss a number of writers and poets, both writing at the time of empire and responding to it later but sticking with the ones responding when all of this was actually happening when debates about abolition were still very much real um there were a lot of writers who you mentioned who had some tensions between their own feelings towards this issue and yet their family and maybe sometimes themselves directly benefiting from this trade um one example that stuck with me perhaps because i studied her poetry in school was elizabeth barrett browning and her poem aurora lee Can you explain why you argue that this poem represents a lot of the kinds of histories that were actually playing out in real time and these tensions that were happening?
1: So I think with the poem that you've mentioned, as with many other examples, quite often the people writing them, and this also includes people like Wordsworth and uh, Jane Austen, who, who was writing her novels they were inclined to support anti-slavery movements and they were opposed to slavery philosophically on the whole. I mean, Wordsworth a bit more begrudgingly as he got older and a bit more conservative. But um, their work often somehow manifests an unexplored tension between the material world that they're living in and benefiting from and their own perception of and love for the the countryside and their philosophical beliefs, which are not in favour of slavery. And so with that poem in particular, she is admiring a landscape and writing from a position where she is actually able to write because she has received and inherited the profits of her family's slave, slave owning activities and their slavery business, um, which kind of gives her the le- you know the leverage to to write and the freedom to write. I mean, this is the same with William Wordsworth that he tried to invest in his. Brother John Wordsworth's East India Company ship that his brother was commanding, and he lost the money because the ship sank. But if you look at, there's a a difference between Wordsworth, a poet who just wants the freedom to write and the freedom to be free of patrons who oblige you Mm. to write poems that you don't want to write, and kind of hamper your poetic freedom. And at the same time, you look at Wordsworth, the businessman. Wordsworth, the businessman, was investing or trying to invest and trying to make money through various aspects of the empire, even in Mississippi bonds through through his wife and female relatives, right until his death. So it's just this: the fact that the poetry might seem to be removed from these contexts, but if you situate it in its material context suddenly you see that it's not quite that simple. And the empire was so close to writers during this period, so uncomfortably close. Jane Austen is another good example. There was a big hoo-ha about one of the Jane Austen former houses, a museum, examining her connection to slavery. And actually, she was very close to slavery because although her favourite poet was Cooper, who was an abolitionist poet, and although she liked Thomas Clarkson and and admired him, she was still uh, aware that her father was managing a plantation in Antigua, hence Mansfield Park, which is all about Antigua, or it's kind of not all about Antigua, but it's very much a presence and the thing which allows Mansfield Park to continue and to develop itself and to exist. Um, And so uh, it's these kind of tensions that I'm trying to tease out, that I'm trying to make sure that the poetry itself is not separated from the material context in which it's produced. Mm. Another good example is Whitehaven, which is a tiny little port on the tip of northwest England. And that place, if you look at the subscription list, for those who were supporting poetry and new books which were being published full of, full of poems about the region, about the times, a lot of those subscribers were involved with the East India Company or with slave trading even.
0: Yeah, and I think that comes through, as you said, it makes sense to not separate the actual content of the poetry with what was happening around them because the poems themselves do... Talk about what was happening around them um, as well as the writing. And so Aurora Lee stuck out to me because it's about a Mediterranean child um, to a degree. And the idea of moving between different cultures, different climates, um, and making those kinds of changes was, as you very clearly demonstrate, though I admit I had never thought of it before, um, it was almost, it was quite clearly as if the poet was exploring these kinds of changes and tensions. In the actual poetry. So it shows throughout the examples you've chosen that it doesn't make sense, even in the context of the actual content of the literature itself, to ignore the context in which they were written. Um, And so to stick with Jane Austen for a moment, I was wondering if you could give us a little bit more on why you say that she is, quote, the most significant writer on the topic of country houses and empire, um, which I found very interesting because that's not certainly how I was used to thinking of her. Um, but I think I'm pretty persuaded now. Um, And I was really interested especially around her use of character names. Could you tell us about that? Yeah,
1: there's a fascinating book which I recommend for any Austen scholars if they haven't come across it by Margaret Doody about Jane Austen's place names. And Margaret Doody demonstrates so convincingly With that, Jane Austen was not unknowing about her place names and character names, rather, she was extremely subtle and indicated in a really indirect way what her thoughts and feelings about things were by using particular names. So, one of the striking things about Jane Austen that Margaret Doody points out is that. Most of her dislikable characters are named after slave traders who were, which would be well known to people at the time, but often missed by uh, readers today. So Norris, you know, Mrs. Norris, Mrs. Elton, uh, people like that, who you're not supposed to like. And the reference to slave trading is kind of her way of of further dismissing them (laughs) and their reputation. But I think that obviously Edward Said wrote about this very influentially some time ago about Mansfield Park and Jane Austen's silence about the cruelties of slavery. And lots of Austen scholars have since looked into that and said, well, actually, a lot of sermonising literature, which was anti-slavery literature, had been written at that point, and it was by then a little bit hackneyed. And Jane Austen was not into writing polemic, but if you put an historical lens and look at that fine-grained detail in her text, you can see that not only did she create a world in which a plantation in Antigua was, cl- c- you know, p- clearly creating the conditions for the country house itself. But she was also showing that there was a silence about it, which Saeed read rather negatively, but you could see it in other ways, Um, or you could see her as being quite agnostic about it. But it just seems hardly a coincidence that she's writing about that when her father is managing a plantation estate. Affairs for a, an old school friend, so I think that it's again worth just stepping back and looking at that. I mean, also Jane Austen's brothers were sea captains, and a lot of the names reflect some of the naval, the ships and the it, that were used in the naval battles in colonial wars, which her brothers were busy fighting too. But certainly, in in terms of the country house, she is really the foremost the most popular writer who embraces
0: country house settings and she's enduringly so. Certainly, I think an interesting perspective for many of our listeners, uh, regardless of their familiarity with Austen or the literature on her. Um, Well,
1: it's also her unfinished novel. It has got a black character called Miss Lamb. So you you don't know where she
0: was going with that. It was kind of interesting. That's a good point. Um, and in fact, moving, so moving away from the literature written in the midst of empire, um, you also explore, as you mentioned briefly at the beginning, writers responding to that legacy of empire in the countryside, in the country as a whole. Um, and you describe this as uh, one aspect of it being post-colonial pastoral poetry, which was a great term and something I really enjoyed learning about Um, And you discuss how in this genre, there are a number of tropes that come up uh, over and over as part of this kind of, as you said, sustained exploration. So I was wondering if you could sort of tell us a bit about this category of post-colonial pastoral poetry, um, and then I might ask you about some of the particular tropes that caught my attention.
1: Absolutely. I think it's been an assumption that British Black and British Asian writers have not engaged with the countryside or been interested in writing about it or have not loved and appreciated the pastoral tradition. And what I mean by that is really that obviously there's a long tradition stretching back to kind of ancient Greek verse, which and ideas of the rural idyll, um, conveying ideas of Arcadia and so on, which have which really took root in the 17th and 18th centuries and has kind of moved forward since then. And as, a, as part of the pastoral tradition, you have anti-pastoral writing. And I think critics have a bit lazily assumed that contemporary British writers, writers of colour, would be always automatically anti-pastoral writers. But what I'm trying to say is that on the contrary, if you look at someone like V.S. Naipaul, *The Enigma of Arrival*, that whole work is yes, a critical, yes, a globally conscious and um, colonial mm-hmm. co- colonial so, you know a novel. Uh, sorry, a novel which is uh, has a strong sense of empire, um, if vague and and sort of not very historicised, but. That novel is a celebration of the pastoral, as well as an interrogation of it, and it's part and parcel of that pastoral condition. It sits uh, uh, tradition sorry, it sits in continuity with that tradition in a way that the vast majority of poetry, certainly, but also fiction that I've come across, fits in with that tradition and is in close dialogue with it. So, poets who are quite well known in Britain, like um, Grace Nichols and John Agard, but Grace Nichols especially is in close dialogue with pastoral poets and makes frequent reference to them and also just extends those ideas by thinking about what she read at school. So, she talks about William Wordsworth's poem, You Know, I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud, all about daffodils and how she's looking at daffodils in her English garden and remembering having read this pastoral verse and, you know, this romantic literature when she was at school and where there wasn't a daffodil in sight. So it's a, a sort of knowing engagement with the pastoral, but it's certainly not anti-pastoral in, in lots of ways. It's
0: not. So you mentioned flowers and that was, I mean, flora and fauna in general was definitely something that kept coming up. Um, And there were a number of tropes. Um, I I could really only choose one to ask you about given time constraints. Um, But the one that I wondered if you could talk with us about is the pheasant. Yeah, it's funny you should
1: pick the pheasant actually because the pheasant and my work on the pheasant, because I was sort of caught up in this culture war was the thing that some of the tabloid newspapers attacked me on <laughs> because pheasants are very strongly associated with the British countryside and yet, clearly, they're not originally native to the countryside. They've come from elsewhere and they're a kind of South Asian bird. It may have been brought over by the Romans a bit so a long time ago, but certainly not an originary kind of species here. And and I point this out in my book, and there's a wonderful story which is called Chasing Pheasants by Mansu Islam. And it's about two Indian men who've come over to Britain. They work in an Indian takeaway in the countryside. And on a walk one day, they come across a bunch of pheasants and it's all about them catching one and taking it home and finding it hard to kill it because they just feel some sense of kinship with it because it's uh, from the same part of the world as they are. And that kind of engagement, again, with, with Britain's wildlife, I mean, it's very much, I mean, pheasants, are, the pastoral tradition is full of pheasants, whether that's Alexander Pope or Sylvia Plath, they've written about a lot about pheasants and they're part and parcel of here now, but it really did anger and trigger people <laughs> when I mentioned yeah. that they weren't native to Britain, which is quite strange, really, that but, but they're associated with traditions like pheasant hunting and the, the kind of rural idyll and... Getting away from the city, I think that this is why they're, they're sort of much loved iconography,
0: which nobody necessarily wanted disturbed. Fair enough, and I think you show that the country house is also at the centre of a lot of investigation at the moment. The National Trust coming up with a big report, um, and a lot of kind of debate around it. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how Black British and Black Asian, Black British Asian writers. Um, novelists and poets have used the country house or examined the country house in their writing and i wonder if you could compare that to white british historical authors like charles dickens or the brontes how is the country house being interpreted by these different writers
1: well it's a big question and there's no general rule but i i think that in in contemporary writing about country houses many Writers of colour have really focused on the global dimensions of country houses. Um and they there's Catherine Johnson's novel, which looks at all the things which were consumed in country houses, whether that and, and in the local environs, whether that be rum from Jamaica or you know, the sitting on the rooftop of the house and seeing the ships going out to across the Atlantic. Um, from from Bristol or whether that's the room which is full of chinoiserie and a uh, reference to East India Company connections. I think there's a real consciousness of country houses' relationship to the British Empire and David Dabedin being an earlier example of that from the 1990s examining the black presence in country houses of uh, kidnapped Africans uh, especially children in country houses as well so I think that this is what's being brought to our understanding of country houses but also by historians who's, to whose you know a work writers inc- increasingly make reference who have been producing data boaters like the legacies of British slave ownership and having projects like the East India Company at home. And when I uh, I co-authored the National Trust report on its houses' connections to the British Empire, and what we were doing now was we were bringing together into one place all the research findings that have so far been made about individual houses in the care of the National Trust, which is a very large organisation. It's got 300 properties and most of those are country houses and a third of those, we found, are significantly and often multiply connected to wildly different aspects of colonial activity across the centuries. And that ranges from, you know, the the, the black presence, the, the African presence, the Indian presence, Um, It includes East India Company nabobs, you know, returnee employees who came back and then moved out and bought these large or built or extended these large country houses and also slave ownership. So this was, I suppose, a bit of a shock for lots of people because the country house is so clearly identified with retreat from the city, retreat from the world, a place of rest and seclusion, that it's very difficult to then shift your thinking about that when you understand that they were very much connected to these global systems, the slavery business and also to wealth which came from other kinds of activity like serving in the Bengal army or importing tobacco
0: and i i think that comes out in how you mention um a bit about the brontes um who at least famously uh set a lot of things in country houses um quite often described as being sort of in the middle of nowhere or off by themselves um and yet you detail how that wasn't necessarily the author's understanding or experience they weren't Um, aristocrats who had not been involved in immigration or moving around Um, and they were like with Jane Austen there were sort of hints of this throughout their books Um, but then when you discuss more current writers many of whom are um, black British or black Asian um, or sorry British Asian um, how those global connections then become much more central they're not hinted at maybe for interpretation, depending on how you understand this line or this word, actually they're front and centre of the story. Um, And it seems like this is somewhat simultaneously happening both in literature and, as you said, in the history, uh, which is absolutely fascinating.
1: Yes. I I mean, just to add to what you said about the Brontes, you're right that the Brontes were Irish immigrants. So the father of the Bronte sisters was, and he changed the name to a more Anglicised version um but the fascinating thing about some a novel like Jane Eyre is that yes of course the, you've got these novels by white British writers about the you know depicting the the country houses secluded gothic place so you've also got Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey which does the same and that's all part of a wider tradition of course but Jane Austen, uh, sorry, Jane Eyre um, is a really great example of a house. It's not just the Gothic; it's the it's the it's the colonial kind of Gothic, isn't it? Because the the Gothic is all about what is repressed, and there is a a a Caribbean wife in the attic, and this is all the great secret. Of that house, which is kind of kept closed up almost in the the back of the brain um hidden away from sight, and I think that that is a very good way of understanding these repressed histories mm-hmm. if you if you see that, but I think it's also a question of um yeah just recognizing the extent to which recent historical inquiry is increasingly informing a, a shifting of that colonial presence to the sort of front and centre of contemporary writing. But, I mean, the Gothic is an interesting one too, just to go to the, back to that, because a lot of slave owners, for example, the Beckfords, who made their money from plantations, would then build Gothic-style Houses. So there's a Gothic style castle, neo-Gothic castle built from Jamaican sugar money in North Wales called Penryn Castle. And then the Beckford, um, the the old the old Beckford mansion, which eventually fell down, was also Gothic. And it's uh, building the Gothic. And this isn't my idea. This is what several critics have already argued is was a way of disassociating yourself from new money and implying that you were somehow in the countryside, a part of the landed gentry for generations that you weren't sort of newly arrived. And you could then symbolically and visually insinuate yourself into the rural past, much further into the rural past than you naturally would otherwise have done.
0: So on the idea of historical things being sort of blurred, that the um, associations being a bit tenuous. Um, One aspect that was really interesting to me was the idea of the moor. And in an audio format like this podcast, the ambiguity of that term actually comes through really beautifully because as you demonstrate in your chapter, there's the moorlands, the actual physical area, sort of lowercase m. um, And then there's also the old-fashioned term, uppercase m, used to refer to realistically anyone who seemed like they could be from Africa or the Middle East Um, and you really interestingly show that these two terms first of all have nothing to do with each other in terms of how we got them um, but then kind of end up almost getting blurred in a way and kind of creating this idea of the people on the fringes land on the fringes and somehow connect them so I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about these two terms that sound the same come from different places, but ended up with similar connotations.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's such a, a beautiful summary of the argument that you've already made, but basically the, the etymology or the, the whole kind of naming process, the Moors and, and Blackmoor, are um, com- entirely historically coming from different places. But as you have rightly suggested, the, the Moors became associated with blackness and again, with a, a lack of civilizations, a, a, a place for outcasts and wanderers and um, places that could not be controlled by polite society. And I mean, you do get a lot of those plays, uh, you know, those interplays of ideas in something like a novel like Wuthering Heights by. Emily Bronte and that's where Heathcliff is very much a creature of the moors in a way he is the ultimate blackamoor, if you want to to see it that way and Charlotte Bronte in an introduction to Wuthering Heights actually talks about the, the moors and the moorland being Schwartz and sort of savage I think she uses that word so these things sort of get blurred and dehistoricised, if you like, because there are just general ideas about those who belong to civilised society and those who don't. And the moor is a very useful literary metaphor for the wild places, the uncolonizable, if you like, spaces and So a lot of even modern descriptions in recent nature writing still play on that set of images and use those kinds of tropes. And there's a lot of mention of of blackness and so on. There's also a material dimension that I I do talk about. For example, in Exeter, there's a a long uh, wall which was built with money from plantations, and that's all formed part of a a national park there. And so there are these kinds of real connections. I I was fascinated to see a, a, a video, which it was like an art video produced independently by somebody who was exploring her own blackness And the more and she in the video, she progressively covers herself with mud in a way that was sort of indicating Mm -hmm. her sense of belonging to that place and embracing of those kinds of metaphors, which was interesting.
0: Hmm. Well, so moving more to the creative section of the book, um, you have a number of different types of creative responses So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you chose which types of writing to include. I think sometimes the content of a piece of
1: creative writing is really suggesting the form. And so I have got a mixture of short stories and poems. And that's partly the preference of my publisher because it does... People True Press does like to have a lot of mixed genre anthologies, so they were quite comfortable with, with me mixing both. But um, I've, I've used short stories for things like there's one called Strawberries, which just suggested itself as a story because it's part of a journey through a slightly dystopian landscape. To find the the last strawberries in England, and it really explores the idea of climate change, and it's it's quite a modern in, in its focus. But then some of the other pieces were inspired by actual historical records, where I felt that there was such a tragedy there that it deserved a poem to reflect, again, as I've said, on the human dimensions of that. So I've got a poem called Matilda, which is based on a grave you can find in Oxhill Cemetery in Warwickshire. It's a tiny little village. And that was, uh, it's a history which has been investigated by local Black history groups, and again, more recently, by another researcher who's a local historian. So I think that it depended on really the the subject matter and and whether it suggested a short reflection or a a longer meditation or a longer
0: narrative because it's some kind of quest. That makes sense. As someone who doesn't do creative writing, I'm always curious about how that goes. Um, Personally, I particularly enjoyed pieces of the creative responses more than others, as I'm sure everyone does. Um, And the two that most stuck out were Pastoral, A New Chronology, which seemed to combine this idea of history and the personal in this sort of new way of thinking about timelines in the rural parts of England. Um, But I also really enjoyed Cotswolds. And so I was wondering if you might introduce us a bit to that poem and then read it out for us.
1: Yes and this is again one of my more recent experiences of the countryside with one of my closest friends who who appears in the poem. Her name is Hamida and she has a daughter Lana and both of us love going on adventures and we like walking so the three of us got, got into Hamida's car and we went had a pub lunch and then we walked through the countryside and the poem is about the adventure we have but it's also about a sense of, of trespass and I, I called this poem um cotswolds and then it's got a subtitle snow's hill village because near snow's hill there is a field of lavender and that this poem centers around our attraction to that lavender field Wonderful. So would you like me to read it i would love it
0: if you wouldn't mind reading it out to us
1: Okay, Snow's Hill Village. The map confounds us. We feed horses, follow walls, cross hobbled fields. We peep over limestone, buds smoke, bees drone. Hamida climbs a wall. Her veil's a flag I follow, ignoring nettles, boundaries, Lana's pleas. We enter a lavender field. Rome-combed rose. Hamida twists a stem and hands Lana a sprig. Lavender Arabica, she says. Loot, I say. We grin and get to work, hugging armfuls, tugging roots. Reminds me of Provence, I call. Matches my bathroom, Hamida retorts. We stop. A tractor putters across the hill. Voices. We're rabbits. Fearing farmers, dogs, diesel, wire. Words drift, cornstalks crunch. Ramblers pass by. Got the lavender, I ask. Loot, says Lana, brandishing her bunch. Mirth grips us. The field weeks blue, indigo, violet. Back on the footpath, we steal a last look. The lavender
0: stands guard, stiff-stalked, (laughs) club-headed. Thank you for sharing that with us. If I could ask you, what was the most surprising thing that you realised or discovered in the process of writing this book?
1: I think the main thing is quite how saturated the countryside is in colonial history. I had some sense of it, but the more I go into the topic, the more significant I realise it is. And one of the things which... Interested me most was how interwoven the history of empire is with working people's experience and rural life, um, not just the aristocracy. Um, and also, I realized how important it is to understand that East India Company activity is not distinct, it is distinct from, but it's not entirely separate. From other forms of colonial activity and that often the same figures were involved in more than one type of colonial activity or the same families across different generations had different kinds of engagements with aspects of the British Empire. So it's important not to be too tidy-minded about how we see and define colonial activity because it changes across periods and also it's not always profitable. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, and it's not just about wealth. It's about lots of different things. It's about influence. It's about access to political power. It's about reshaping the landscape. Um, it's also about extracting materials as part of, for example, the slave trade and um, bringing materials back which then have their own impact. So I think it's important to understand colonial systems and how they
0: interlock, not just with rural history, but with each other. Thank you for that. Um, And as my last question, which always feels a bit tricky to answer, um, what are you working on now or next that maybe we can follow or be aware of? Well, I'm writing a book for Penguin called
1: The Countryside, Ten Walks Through Colonial Britain. And my idea from this book really came as part of my response to the culture war, where people often confronted me with this choice. They would say either you talk about working people's history, which is repressed, or you talk about the history of the British Empire. And I really wanted to talk about Rural history, working people's history and its relation or both of the relationships of those two, empire. And I also wanted to have a series of conversations. So I'm walking through different regions of Britain with people who have ancestral connections to empire. And I'm doing that in a way that pays tribute to the conversation, you know, to, to their thoughts on the subject, to their own relationship with the landscape around them. Um, but also as a way of understanding the human dimensions of that history and also having conversations rather than angry debates and also um, understanding and bringing out the the multiple traumas and hardships on different levels and to different degrees which were brought about through those colonial involvements. And so I'm looking at the history of uh, copper, cotton, Wool and highland clearances and drawing on lots of historical work as well as the archives to bring out the unique colonial
0: stories of particular places at particular times. I think that sounds fascinating. I hope you'll come back when that book is out. Um, but in the meantime, there's a lot to get your teeth sunk into for readers interested in all of those topics. Um, in your current book, again, titled Green Unpleasant Land, Creative Responses to Rural England's Colonial Connections, which was published by People Tree Press in twenty twenty one. Thank you, Doctor Corin Fowler, for sharing your time with us. You're very welcome.